Would you stand with me, please? We're reading again from 1 Kings 19. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholi, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him and was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah, and he said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with their yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. The word of the Lord. we're considering the narrative of Elijah and Elisha. We come to the call of Elisha when Elijah comes and invites Elijah to participate in Elijah's ministry. The call of God comes through Elijah and is placed upon Elijah, which invites us to reflect upon the call of God in our own lives. This is something that not only Old Testament saints, but all those who are found in Christ's experience. And given the marvels of uh, our culture in the day that we live, one might ask simply, who has time for the call of God? Right? If we think just about the last six months, drones have been invented that carry human beings. And this week, glasses came out that will put an end to bifocals. They uh, somehow know where you're looking and adjust the lens automatically to give you the optimal vision uh, through the lens based on what direction your eyes focus We successfully grew human cells in a pig, which is apparently some enormous step forward in being able to grow human organs and other kinds of animals, and may in the not-too-distant future put uh, to an end all sorts of donor banks, right? Elon Musk says that it won't be long before any citizen can opt to take a trip into space. The marvels that are happening all around us with the achievements that we're making, with the things that we're overcoming, Who needs God? Who needs uh, to heed or to pay attention to this call? And even if we did not pay attention to what was happening culturally, just the busyness of our own lives, how often are we prompted or how often are we prone to let the call of Christ go to voicemail? And by that I mean, uh, yes, Spirit, I feel you you pursuing me and moving me in this direction. I've been convicted to do this 
particular thing as a result of being in your word, but, you know, perhaps maybe after my, my child scores or is able to do this thing in which I've invested or perhaps after my investments mature or perhaps I just really, I've been working to break into this social circle or indeed maybe simply uh, I need to finish this phenomenal TV show. All the things that might cause us, you know, part of you knows really, really well that the call of Jesus is a call to a narrow and difficult path. How easy it is to tune it out rather than to heed it or pursue it. How easy it is to be entertained or to be invested in something else. This challenge to heed Jesus' call is certainly nothing new, right? Jesus addresses it directly in Luke 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me to Luke 9, verse 57. In which some considering following Jesus, and Jesus interacts with their expectations. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as you go, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Following Jesus means perhaps that you will not have a home. Following Jesus means the needs of the living must be put before the needs of the dead or the needs of social convention. Following Jesus means that he is king and his family comes before your biological family. How difficult it is, right? And how tempting it is once putting your hand to the plow to look back. There are lots of things to look back at. There are lots of things drawing our attention and perhaps things that look more winsome and things that we think will promise us more life. And what a hard saying of Jesus that those who look back are not fit for the kingdom of God. How do we understand that statement and how do we learn from God's call to Elisha? Well, in order to do that, let's back up a little bit and uh, reconsider Elijah. Uh, Zach did a beautiful job last week of, uh, of walking us through Elijah's reluctance to embrace his call, right? Tired and worn out, cynical. He uh, runs away, ran away from his call, and he requested to die. He was done, and he wanted to cash out in his mission. God met him in that place, but in our passage this week, we see that Elijah has not necessarily really come back. He's not really adopted God's tune. He's still uh, a half-hearted prophet. If you look at verse 15 in our passage, Uh, God commands Elijah to do several things. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. All right, so God commands Elijah to do three things on his way uh, towards Elisha, which is to anoint two kings and then ultimately to anoint Elisha. Very easy to get tripped up there, right? Elijah will not obey. 
He doesn't anoint either of the kings. He doesn't carry through with that. And when he gets to Elijah, his anointing of Elijah is very ambiguous. Anointing, really without exception in the Old Testament, refers to the pouring of oil on a person's head and a pronouncement over their change in office. Right? So you think of David Shepherd, now you're David King, and to signify this, I anoint you with oil on your head. Well, Elijah does not pour anything on Elijah's head. Yes, he throws his cloak upon him, signifying that his mantle is going to be handed down to him. But there's also no pronouncement. And even more oddly, when Elijah asks if he can go back and kiss his mother and father, Elijah says, you know, go. What have I done to you? So it's difficult to know how to read that phrase. But for me, given the interaction that Elijah has just had with God, given his lack of obedience to anointing the two kings he's been commanded, and given his lack of obedience in terms of the process of anointing Elijah, he seems that he's still cynical, that he's half-heartedly obeying. And there's almost a sense of, you know, what have I done to you? God's chosen you for this, and I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. You have to make your own decision. We see someone who, having received, Elijah, having received the call of God, is only partially invested in that call. It's an easy thing to do, right? We've said there's many things to look back to. Now, the danger here for us in in not paying attention to and heeding the call of Christ is that to not heed the call of Christ is to decide not to worship Christ. And you and me, right, no one can choose not to worship You are a being that is created to worship. So you will worship something else. But that thing that you worship will very often devour you. It is not something that is built to love you back. It is something that is, uh, by its very nature, will simply continue to consume you. An interesting picture of this is the story of W.C. Jameson. Uh, Jameson uh, was part of a group of adventuring uh, treasure hunters. Uh, kind of a neat uh, group of individuals and story around them. Coming out of uh, Vietnam, they were different servicemen who were brought together somehow, and they were all highly trained, snipers, uh, black, uh, black belts in martial arts, and uh, highly educated, two masters and two PhDs amongst this group of four men. And they decided that they were going to, uh, on the side, uh, invest in treasure hunting. One of the four was a British intellectual and taught at a uh, university there. And he used his credentials to go to Mexico City and to pour over archives of old maps of Mexico and the American Southwest. And what he was looking for were uh, the original mines that were dug by colonials. And they would go and find these mines and try to uh, take whatever treasure was left in those mines as they were forgotten about. And they were relatively successful in uh, this endeavor. Well, Jameson, who is the person who is representing the group in this interview, uh, tells the story of a time when a woman reached out to him after some newspaper article had been run about him as a treasure hunter. And she told the most uh, bizarre story. She said, uh, my husband was a recreational treasure hunter. And we went out to look for a mine that he had discovered in some old book in Arizona. They lived in Georgia at the time. And we found the mine. And we found silver in the mine. And so we came directly home, long enough for my husband to drop me off. His name was Herman Pitcock. And Herman quit his job. And he loaded up his truck with all the necessities and immediately went back to Arizona. He said, I'll be back when I have the silver. And a year went by and two years went by. 
And by the time that Herman's wife is contacting Jameson, seven years had gone by. So she says, I'll give you the map if you will go out and look for the remains of my husband. And Jameson, who claims that he had already discovered the mine, uh, maybe, uh, decides that he will take this up. And so he and his team go, and they, uh, they take their, their usual disguises as bird watchers, and they make their way into uh, to where this mine is located and uh, set up camp. Him out first day, they're headed up. They find the trail of rock that descends from a mine that they just threw out of the mine door, and it cascaded down the mountain. So they know they're close, and they're walking up the hill, and a shot rings out. Someone, someone fires at them. So they quickly descend. They, they talk about what to do the next day. They camp out. Now, these, these men are well-armed. They're, you know, they're not necessarily intimidated simply by being shot at. Um, but they hear footsteps during the night. And in the morning, they can see that there are footprints around their campsite uh, that were left from the night before. So they debate, and they decide to proceed up the hill again and do so. And at this point, they get all the way to the mine opening, and a shot rings out from inside the mine out of the opening toward them. Well, they scramble for cover outside of the, the entryway of the mine. And on a whim, Jameson says, uh, Herman Pickcock, are you Herman Pickcock? And there's a long pause. And Herman Pickcock says, yes, uh, it's, I'm Herman Pickcock. And then he flies into this incredible rage that they're there to steal his treasure. So Jameson is able somehow to peek into the mine shaft very briefly and he says what he saw startled him dramatically because it was a picture that, that almost looked made up. It was a man who was a, a skeleton of a man. And he was dressed in rags, and he looked like he had not showered or shaved in seven years. And he was obviously not in his, completely in his right mind. And he was hunkered down be, behind barrels of gunpowder and dynamite, and he had lit a match. And that was enough for Jameson to simply say, run. And all of them start uh, proceeding up the hill, and uh, Pickock drops the match and blows the entire uh, mine up. And so, uh, you know, what incredible story, but what is this a picture of? Right? It's a picture of a man who went out, consumed with finding treasure, found it, and collected it all. And as he collected it, he increasingly couldn't part with it. And so couldn't leave it and didn't want to drive away with it and stayed there to protect it as his fear grew and grew that someone was going to steal it from him. All right, it's, it's a living, live, realistic picture of a modern-day golem, right? consumed by what he loved. Now, that's a dramatic picture, but it's a picture we always need to remind ourselves because to not heed the call of Christ, to not worship him, is to go down a road of worshiping something else. And this can take many manifestations, and we're not going to belabor it anymore in terms of you can all think of someone who goes down the, um, the road of drug addiction or intimacy addiction or, um, or success addiction or control addiction and is consumed by it, right? Literally giving themselves over to it more and more until they become less and less human. I do want to remind you, though, that this can also happen within the church and within religion, Right? We need to repent not only of the gross sins that we commit, but also we can employ righteousness in the same way. We say, I love my righteousness because of the identity that it establishes for me. I love my righteousness because it, I think it makes me more powerful and more loved by God can, and um, better than other people. And it enables me to judge them. 
And a e- really easy way to go find a, a Herman Pickcock is to go into a church and find an old saint who has spent their life serving the church and doing the jobs that are commissioned to them, but deep down they feel like they've never been honored. They've never received back to the degree that they've given. They've never been blessed by God for what they've offered. And that is the last person you want to give a match because they are filled with anger and hurt and rage and are, would be all too eager to blow everything up. Why? Because they've been consumed by worshiping a form of righteousness that has very little to do with Jesus and really only has to do with their self-righteousness. So whether inside the church or outside the church, right? if we're not heeding Jesus' call and worshiping him, we're going down a road that will consume us one way or another. Right? And you see that to some degree to Elijah. Certainly Elijah is not a Herman Pitcock. Right? Elijah is someone perhaps that we identify more with because he's a half-hearted prophet. He says, yes, I'm called to this. Yes, I'm going to seek to be faithful in most parts, but I really don't like it, and I'm bearing a grudge against God in some capacity. Right? So how do we hear the call of Christ and embrace it in a way that honors him, but in a way that also gives us freedom? Why are we so reluctant to embrace the call and to, um, to really believe that, that God might choose us to, to engage some purpose by which his kingdom might be furthered? Elisha gives us a different picture. Right? Elijah's reaction to being called is rather remarkable. What happens? You know, interestingly, we're told at the beginning that he's leading uh, 12 yoke of oxen, and immediately we know two things. One, Elijah was a guy you didn't want to mess with. He is a big dude. Right? If you're commanding single-handedly 12 yoke of oxen, you are, uh, you're pretty strapping. And secondly, he's, he's got to be fairly rich, right? To be commanding that many oxen, he's got substantial resources. And the mantle is thrown upon him, and yes, he go, asks to go back and kiss his mother and father, but clearly he's eager and ready to follow in Elijah's footsteps, which, what does that mean for Elisha? It means that he's giving up everything, right? He's being called um, away from his home, away from his wealth. He's being called to a road in which he's not going to be married and not have a family, but is going to continually be making sacrifices to extend the kingdom of God and to be God's voice in this world. It's a remarkably difficult calling. And yet he embraces it, and we see that because what does he do? He breaks up the yoke of the oxen to burn, uh, to be the fire for a sacrifice. He sacrifices all of the animals. This is a substantial sacrifice. He joyfully embraces, he's essentially burning all of his bridges and saying, I have no intention of looking back. I'm putting my hand to the plow and I'm only going to move in this direction. And there's great joy there. Why? Because he seeks to be a blessing to the people. The sacrifice has been made. Who am I going to share all this meat with? I'm going to share it with the people that are in the community. So we have a a picture of someone who embraces radically the call of God. Even though the call upon Elijah is something that is really quite quite irrational, quite unreasonable. Have you ever thought about the call of God is is in some ways remarkably unreasonable? Like how easy would it be to be Elijah and say, you know, that's a really tempting offer, but I'm going to continue to worship here and I want to... I want to see my parents grow old and die. I want to have a family. You know, I'm pretty well off. I, I know a little bit about your story, Elijah. It's not very attractive or tempting. I think I'm going to stay right here. How easy it would be to decide to opt to move in a different direction and not heed the call of God. And one of the reasons that I think we struggle to heed the call of God is that notion that, 
God, your, your call is unreasonable. It's, it's irrational. You couldn't really be asking that because that just seems a bit off the farm. Now, this is a particular problem for us because we live in such a, a period in which we value so highly rationalism and we think we're so logical and we think through all of our decisions and what we might be willing to do. And, we, um, and so when God's call comes upon us and asks something that we think is unreasonable, uh, we have such a hesitancy or such a, um, such a pride and arrogance in a way to say, I bet God doesn't mean that. And to be honest, there's such a tension in the call of Christ. You know, on the one hand, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I like that invitation. And on the other hand, Jesus will say, you know, pick up your cross and follow me. Right? I'm calling you to lay down your life, and that's the only way that you're going to find it. There's a lot of tension there. You know, from one perspective, we could say, Jesus, which is it? You know, are you, are you gentle? And is your burden easy and light? Or are you calling me to carry this really heavy cross throughout life? How do we, does Jesus know what he's talking about? How do we reconcile those phrases? I think in this regard, one of the great Christian thinkers that helps us think through this a bit is Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard was consumed with kind of the question that we're asking about the call of God and its reasonableness. And uh, the story that he was particularly consumed by was what he considered to be the hardest call in Scripture apart from the call upon Jesus himself, which was the call to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And Kierkegaard said, what must have been going on in Abraham's mind as he climbed the mountain, having been commanded by the angel of God not only to give up his one and only son, but to actually kill the very promise of God God had promised to Abraham that through Isaac, his his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. How in the world does God then ask me to kill the very promise that he's given? It's an incredibly unreasonable request. And so Kierkegaard wrestled with this dramatically to great extents and said, how do we understand God's call to us in our relationship to it? And so he said, what was Abraham thinking on this climb up the mountain? And he asked, was Abraham thinking that this is simply a trick of God? Is God simply calling me up, and this is a test, and at the end of the day, he's not going to make me go through with it? And Kierkegaard said, no, it can't be that, because then no test of God would ever be taken seriously. So he goes on, he says, well, is Abraham just resigned kind of to this tragic circumstance. In other words, he's climbing up the mountain and, he, and he's saying, well, I've become too attached to my son. And God is the creator and I'm the creation and God can command anything that he wants. And this is what I've been called to. And he said, no, uh, it can't be that either because that would be a, a, a willingness to give up faith in God's promise that he had already issued. And so Kierkegaard came to the place where he said, um, Abraham must be believing as he's going up the mountain that A, God will absolutely require him to plunge the knife into his son and B, that God will somehow preserve Isaac's life and that there was no logical way for Abraham to reconcile those two beliefs. He simply marches up the mountain in a posture of faith. But this is where Kierkegaard gets really interesting. He said, this is the call to every believer. 
Because the call of God cannot be put into any logical framework. It's not subject to human reason. It is simply that which is taken and pursued by faith. And this is what we see in Abraham and his response, and it is what we are seeing in Elijah and his response. And it is, I think, something that we need to heed in terms of considering God's call upon our life. And to stop you know, asking, is this really reasonable? And start asking simply, what is God requiring of me? Now, what are you calling me to? Right? The call of the Christian is, is, is not something that's in question. Even if we were to do an incredibly quick survey of redemptive history, Moses looks forward to the day when the Spirit of God, a spirit of prophecy, is poured out on the people. And the prophet Joel says, uh, this day is actually going to happen. It's going to happen in the future, and the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on the people. And Peter at Pentecost in Acts 2 says, this day has happened. The Spirit of God has come upon the people of God. Right? And then the New Testament authors will pick up this language where you see symbolized in the throwing of the cloak as a disposition of the spirit of prophecy that goes from Elijah to Elijah. Right? The authors of the New Testament will speak in the language that we must be clothed in Christ, that we must be clothed in the spirit of God. Right? In Colossians 3, Paul will say we must put off our old clothes and be clothed in our new clothes, which are actually Christ himself. Now, we all possess the spirit. Right? We are all marked out by God in that fashion, and we are called in, out of darkness into his light. But calling is never calling in and of itself simply for salvation, apart from purpose. Right? You are given gifts by the Spirit. You are called to participate in the kingdom being extended as ambassadors of reconciliation. There is no call simply to say, I am saved, hooray, without also asking the question, I am saved and called to some purpose. What might that purpose be? So often we stop short and say, well, I've been called into the church, grand, but I'm not called into any particular purpose. What really is the purpose that you're called into? You know, what would it be if we just started that? You know, I feel like God may be calling me to, to leave my higher paying job and to go uh, work at Costco. And I believe he wants me to, uh, to speak the good news of Christ amongst the workers there. Or I believe that God wants me to really reduce what my family is involved in. Right? Because I believe he wants me to play a role in discipling people. And right now I just don't have time. Or I really believe that God is calling me to be radical with my finances, which means I'm going to have to rethink everything and downsize. And so often what do we do? To, we have those leading of the Spirit. And we read Scripture and are convicted and we say, oh, but that's, that's not that reasonable. That's not really logical. I can think of a number of reasons why what I'm doing is very smart and very well ordered. And Kierkegaard and Abraham and Elijah would all say to you, by what, by what standard do you think the call of God fits into your logic and into your reason? That's not a good place to start to dismiss the leading of the Holy Spirit. A neat picture of this is uh, Justin Wren. Justin Wren is... Uh, a kid who grew up uh, in the uh, 90s, he was overweight and he, was, um, he had a bad acne problem and he was picked on mercilessly and just didn't find his way as a kid until his foot hit the wrestling mat and he knew that he had found his home. And it took him a while to develop basic skills, but he accelerated quickly. Uh, he was built and geared to be a wrestler. 
and soon dominated the wrestling mat, accelerated through uh, high school wrestling and college wrestling, uh, won national championships, and found himself at the Olympic trials, where he was in a bitter match uh, with an opponent and found himself in a very compromised position. And rather than acquiescing and just throwing the match, he, um, he tried to hang in there, which resulted in a horrific arm break, uh, tearing of the ligaments out of the shoulder, elbow being shattered, just a remarkable destruction to his arm, which threw him, of course, A, into a depression because he'd lost the thing that he was living for, and also into a significant painkiller addiction. Right? He started on painkillers after the surgeries that he had to have for his arm, eventually was operating between three doctors in three different states to uh, continue a very hefty supply of opioids as he was addicted, and really was, um, was pretty much uh, life has no meaning. Life has no purpose. Uh, he happened to be out, though, with friends uh, at an MMA competition and uh, a just low-key neighborhood fighting, right? Mixed martial arts, for those of you who don't know what MMA is. And uh, he got, he, at a lark, uh, somebody couldn't fight, and he jumped in just for fun. His arm had healed up enough. I don't think he could ever um, wrestle again. Uh, but he got in, and uh, he had the same sensation. I'm back. This is my home. Uh, he handily won in the ring and then began to pursue an MMA career, uh, which he was very successful. He rose again rapidly through the ranks, ended up with some exclusive contracts, was making a good bit of money. But he described his life as basically being broken into three-thirds. A third of it was fighting, a third of it was partying, and a third of it was uh, simply doing drugs. And drugs eventually, of course, all right, overcame uh, everything else, and he lost his contract as a result of that drug abuse. So now he's bottomed out, really quite hopeless, all except for a friend in a church who keeps pursuing him, keeps inviting him to church, keeps inviting him to the community groups in the church. And uh, for no other reason, Justin, I really am without hope. I'll keep going and hanging out with these people who seem to be nice and friendly. And over time, the gospel works on his heart, and he eventually prays, God, I'm a drunk and drug addict. I'm a liar and a cheater. I'm many things I've wanted to be, and I'm everything I never wanted to be. God, I've hurt everybody. I don't want to hurt anybody anymore. I don't want to hurt. I desperately need you in my life. So he surrenders. And he is claimed by Christ and participates in the church. He's heard God's call out of darkness into light. We said that is a great story. And too often, that's where our story stops. Is that really the end of the story for Justin? Is that the end of the story for you? Or is God's call something more substantial than that? Well, Justin believed that it was, as he believed that God increasingly put on his heart through the reading of Scripture a real desire to help the poor. And so eventually, uh, Justin would pray, God, I'm yours. Is there anything you want me to do? I desire to do your will, not mine. That's a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of saying, God, I don't expect you to fit in my boxes of logic or reason. What, it is, what is it that you would have me to do? And so Justin ends up going to work in a hard mission in the Congo amongst pygmies, in which he was 6'3", amongst a pygmy population of like 4'5". And they called him uh, essentially the big man who loves us. And he labored there for five years, uh, sharing the gospel and investing in the people there. And eventually the mission just couldn't, uh, financially wasn't working, wasn't working. And so Justin has gone back periodically to MMA, right, to fight, 
to raise money for the mission. Right? But he goes back now in freedom. It's not his identity. It's not something that he's, that's consuming him, right? Why else was he doing all of the drugs and all of the partying? Because he loves this thing, but it doesn't actually offer to him life. Right? But now he goes back in complete freedom. Because it's not his life. It's simply a tool for him to extend the gospel to the, uh, to the pygmies in the Congo of all things. Justin is a picture of a man like Elisha who put his hand to the plow and did not look back. If we consider two pictures of the sermon, Herman Pickcock, right? Shut up in that mine, seven years isolated, loving the thing that he loved the most, right? And lit it all up. Is consumed by it. And the picture of Elisha, who takes all of his wealth, right? What does he do? He lights it all up. He sets it on fire. And gives it up because he knows that he's found a treasure in a field that is worth far more than what he possessed. Now, which of those two men do you think was more free? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom that comes in your call, and yet we confess it is scary and hard uh, to heed that call and to follow it with consistency and integrity. We pray that you would give us faith and strengthen us and help us too. We pray that you would forgive us for the times in which we look back. And we pray that you would strengthen us in our resolve to look forward and to, to not dismiss the leadings of your Spirit to not dismiss the ways in which you may be calling us uh, because we seem, uh, we, we deem them unreasonable or rational or not, just not fitting into our picture of life. You are a God who demands unreasonable things. You are a God who demands irrational things. And it's not because you are capricious, but it's because you know that that is the only way that we will be renewed and awakened. It is the only way that we will hunger and after you and pursue you. It is only in that night of faith uh, that we really run after you with reckless abandon. So in your mercy and your wisdom, would you cause us to find ourselves in those places where uh, it does seem uh, unreasonable, it does seem irrational. And rather than dismissing it, would you give us ears to hear and a heart to be attentive to your spirits? And would you help us to run to obedience Because in obedience, there's freedom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.